This episode is brought to you by Real Python. We love Real Python and we use it in the class every day. Stay tuned for more information about Real Python later in the show. Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. My name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Paredes, and I'm a teacher who codes. This is episode 36, an interview with Peter Chan. Welcome. So, Kelly, we have a special guest and some new technology this week. So we're on the line with Peter Chan coming in all the way from Canada. How are you, Peter? I'm great. I gotta say, I've never done anything like this, guys. It is such a treat to be here. And I'm learning about the potential and what you do with your podcasts as much as I'm connecting with two new friends. Thanks for inviting me. Excellent having you here. Yeah, so this week we're you know kind of in that stretch right between Thanksgiving and the winter break here in the U.S. So things are moving along pretty quickly. And we're going to start the same way we always do, as even though things are busy, with the win of the week. So, Kelly, I'm going to make you go first this time. Oh, you're not making our guests go first. Yeah, usually that's my, my favorite part. But we're going we're gonna to go easy on Peter this week and let him go second. <laughs> I'm so excited. I get to go first. And I'm going to give you time to think about it, Peter. So, Set the you know, bar high, it's always Kelly. I will set the bar high. I have to steal the one that Sean's thinking of, I think. No, I think our win of the week, we had the Hour of Code today. It is the official week of the Hour of Code, and many schools across the world are doing Hour of Code. And we always, we've done it now. This is our second year. First, the first hour is always slow. Then the second hour, kids hear about it. And we probably had about 60 kids in there, correct? Yeah, we do it in two different class periods. So mm -hmm. the second class period that we did it, we had about 60 or 70 students in there. I think the library that we have here in our middle school was pretty full. Yeah, and what's really funny is even though our kids code in Python, they still love to go back and do some uh, JavaScript and block coding with Minecraft. They love hacking Minecraft. When you leave the door open, the first thing they're going to do, they, they stumble back to something that they really love, having falling chickens. Yeah, I don't know who would have encouraged them to <laughs> I, I, go I, I, do I coding know. in Minecraft or anything. wasn't me. I had automate the boring <laughs> stuff out, Al. Just letting you know, Swigert. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it, w it was a lot of fun. We were we were coding in my Minecraft, and we had chickens raining from the sky, and kids making giant lava pools. Giant you know, it really is interesting. Yes. Yeah, so you can code with Tinker or with Make Code in Minecraft, and mm -hmm. so you can both automate your agent to walk around and spawn lava blocks everywhere, or you can trigger things to happen off of chat commands. So it's kind of like casting spells in Minecraft where you wow. can say, like, death from above, and then all these monsters start flying down <laughs> from above you. It's kind of fun. Very in Sean's cool. world. I'm sorry. I mean, or so I hear. <laughs> he makes them all join his world. a little bit world. of a geek in some of you, I think. I get the yeah. feeling. I, it's not me. <laughs> I like the boring stuff. <laughs> well, you like well, automating Sean, it. You and I have that in common then. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so it was it was a lot of fun. We we really do enjoy the hour of code because, you know, our classes for computer science are not taught to all students at the same time. So hour of a code hour of code is a great way to bring students in from across our middle school no matter whether they've had computer science yet this year 
whether they've already had it or whether they're going to they're in it right now. So it works really well to bring everyone together and have a little bit of fun writing code. And then they also get to play tur- with Turtle, Turtle Graphics. I saw a lot of Turtle Graphics today, and I got to show some of the kids that we haven't taught yet a couple of iterations in random. They're like, oh, cool, and they edited some of their old code. It's yeah. fun. Yeah, so if you're a teacher out there who missed out on Hour of Code this week, you can do Hour of Code pretty much anytime you want. It's a, a really fun thing to do no matter what time of year it is. Yeah, and Codesters has uh, three Python Hour of Code sessions. We can put that on the link, too. Oh, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. there's also some good stuff coming out from Tinker. So there's a, if you just Google for Hour of Code with Python, there's a lot of good stuff happening there. Cool. All right, Peter, I think it's your turn. Uh, so the win of the week is something positive that's happened inside or outside of the classroom. Great. Well, you know, like I'm, I'm a big believer that you need to ha- allow the children. I'm a grade four teacher and my responsibility is all the English subjects is math as well as the English. And, uh, and I'm a big believer that you need to give the children free time in order to allow them to discover and explore. So my room is, is it's not where I want it to be, but it's on its way to being a makerspace almost uh, completely. And there's a bunch of things that most other classrooms don't have. But today the win was when I gave them their free time, almost to the letter, every one of them went into coding, went into uh, we're working with Tinkercad, doing 3D designing. They went into uh, Twinery, writing non uh, writing nonlinear fiction, and they were all of the things that I've shown them. Like they've really transformed from being, I guess, I guess you know, they're they're gamers with with their tech from from being gamers to creators, all of them, and they were choosing that. It wasn't I assigned nothing. They had the choice to go and play a game if they wanted, but all of them were opting to create something and. For me, just seeing that transformation was a real win. That's awesome. We, we love seeing kids create. I think that opportunity for that free play and yeah. play to learn philosophy is something that every great teacher needs to have. Mm-hmm. Play to learn, gamification, it's so true. I think it makes our job a lot easier. Like uh, I, I suffer from from uh, a medical condition that drains my energy, and so I honestly am un- I'm doing what I'm doing in my room to foster a balance of my energy. And one of the ways that I found to entice everybody, without exception, to do whatever it is we're working on, be it math or English, is to in some capacity bring in coding or creating, and and they love it. Yep. Well, I definitely think we should come back to that during our main conversation because I I think that you bring up a really good point about managing energy in the classroom, and that's something I'd like to talk more with you about, about how to bring your own energy and how to manage the energy of the classroom so Mm -hmm. that it operates at the best possible level. So, Sean? All right, so so for me, I'm going to go the other direction. So mine's not really about the students yet. So this is something that I was working on as planning for our last day of classes before we go on winter break. So our last day of classes before winter break, we have something called the Panther Cup, which is kind of a big field day event for a half day in the morning. And we have all sorts of stuff like a big tug of war competition. There's dodgeball. There's a bunch Mm. of silly relays and games and and everything. It's just a lot of fun and a lot of good competition and, and good memories that our students are building. And so I got shanghaied into being part of the uh, planning committee for this, voluntold, whatever you want to call it, right? And so I, part of what I did was bring in some electronic scoring and bring in, you know, ways to... That's right. We have to get the scoring correct because, you know, I'm a 
competitive person. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and it's, and and I've been hearing about this for a year about how the scoring needs to be improved for for Panther Cup from a certain unnamed teaching partner of mine. So <laughs> so I so I, I've got. I've got Kelly's back and I'm I'm going out and I'm making our scoring more electronic and more transparent and all of those things. But the big win has actually been planning all the rosters and everything for the students. So we have to form teams and we have to make sure that they're fair and that they're not, you know, stacked in any way. So what I've done is actually written a bunch of Python scripts that bring in our school roster of all the students and the roster of all the teachers and then assigns all the students to teams based on grade level and gender and you know a few other factors and then spits that all out to Google Sheets so that it can be shared with everyone. And one of the things that was really important to me was making sure that the teams had an even mix of boys and girls and grade levels and things like that. So it also spits out some statistics to verify that the assignments truly are more random and balanced among the grades and genders. So it all has come, in, come together to the point where I've now got all the teams assigned, I've got all the students assigned, and now I'm going to take the next step, which is going to parse through that spreadsheet and send emails to all the teachers with their class, their rosters for their teams, and send emails to all the students saying, here's your team leader and where to go for all of these things. So it's all going to be personalized using a lot of stuff from Automate the Boring Stuff. I love this. Very I, cool. I was watching, yeah, I was watching uh, Sean show me some of the teams as he was randomizing it. And this is one of those things that as a teacher, you can totally use in a whole bunch of different ways. Can you imagine like groups for field trips, managing other type of sports field days? I mean, it's a, it's a great, great project that you did. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things I really wanted to do was try to remove the unconscious bias that you would get if you were grouping the teams. Or You mean the, no, no, randomize it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so it's coming together into a nice little project. So it's, it's a great way of, of taking something that's a tedious teacher chore and making it something that is you know, more automated. And I'm not saving a huge amount of time with it, but I'm also teaching myself and practicing the coding yep. techniques yep. that I'm teaching in class. So it works really well. Oh. Well, I, I don't know if it's my turn <laughs> to speak. <laughs> I'm just going to sure. jump in and tag. <laughs> I don't know how this sure. works. So I, I got to say, Sean, you and I are very much alike in, in that my beginnings with Python were from the book, Automate the Boring Stuff. And uh, that is, that's, I always go to that. And, and the spirit of what that was, which was to, to truly make Python useful to you, not just side projects where it's basically practicing commands and syntax, but, but you're truly doing things that change your efficiency in life. That's, that's what really got me into Python. And I, I've got programming skills. I'm, I'm an old geek. I'm going on 50 now. And, and I, I was, you know, into the BBSs as a kid and, and ran. I was a system operator as a teenager. And yeah, I've been geeking with, with BASIC when it was first out. So I've been doing it for a while. But, but when I saw the power of Python with Automate the Boring Stuff, it really got me excited. And, and like you said, there's so much you can do to make your, your life easier, period. Yeah. Yeah, I, Very cool. I would say especially in, in the area of education and teaching, I think that's especially true. I mean, I've spent most of my career in a corporate setting, and of course there are opportunities to improve efficiency and productivity in a corporate setting. But I think with when it comes to teaching and education, we become set in our ways and we think about, oh, well, we have to just do this, and the only way to do it is to kind of go with a brute force method or just the uh -huh. tedious way of doing yeah. it. But one of the things that's been great coming at 
a teaching career with a fresh set of eyes is being able to say, well, why do we do that? You know, help me understand mm-hmm. asking those questions as a newbie to the process, mm-hmm. because sometimes it's not about automation or it's not about the, the brute force. There's often good reasons for it. And so understanding the reasons for why things are done the way they are has been really helpful for my growth as a teacher, as well as finding opportunities to automate things. This episode was sponsored by Real Python. I use Real Python all the time for things in the classroom. I just recently used Real Python for learning about the difference between sorted and dot sort in Python. I really love the way that they have videos that you can follow and they're chunked into small information. And I can go through and learn about the complexities of each method or function within Python at my own pace. As a teacher, especially a teacher learning Python, I fully recommend using real Python to learn about Python or to help your students learn Python. So Sean, what does Real Python do for our listeners? Do they have any special offers? So Real Python has a special offer for our listeners where you can get a free access to their video course that introduces you to all the new features of Python 3.8. Actually, if you go to Real Python's website, realpython.com/teachingpython, you can sign up and get free access to that course as a listener of Teaching Python. That's amazing. You should go check it out. So Let's take a step back, though. So, Peter, can you tell us, just tell us a little bit what you do? And you're a fourth grade teacher in mm-hmm. Quebec. Yep. And, and you teach math and English. And you so teach, I teach, uh, I, I've, I've <laughs> 20 years teaching. My, my career has been a, an adventure, a circuitous route to getting where I'm at, at a, a small elementary school in a, in a, a rural off-island area outside of Montreal called Mount Pleasant. It's a beautiful, beautiful small town here in Hudson. And I overlook a forest outside of my room. And the kids have a walking path through the trees at recess. I mean, it's just beautiful here. I've, I've taught all over the place. I started teaching in South Korea. I've taught in Ontario. I've taught uh, all grades, both French and English. I've been a computer specialist. Previous to teaching, I was I was in technology. I was I did a lot of technology support. Yeah, okay. I think this is this is really helpful because one of the things that you know many of our teachers and then the Python listeners have is that kind of you know non indirect path to teaching, right? Or the the path that takes them in a lot of different places because I think a lot of people who are drawn to Python are dabblers, right? Like we yeah. try different things and we experience, and we're not afraid to jump into new things. That's and that's the thing, like especially the people that do different things and dabble around, mm-hmm. have that passion for learning new things. So mm. I think that's what we always try to promote is, is if you're that person wow. that's passionate about learning, why not learn mm-hmm. coding? Why not teach it? Yeah. Well, you're, you know what, the dabbling, the tinkering, that, that is definitely me. I am somebody who jumps right in and, and plays in a lot of fields. So you asked me what I do. Well, I, I, what I do is I've been involved in tech all my life, and, and so I'm much further ahead than, than a lot of teachers that I've run into in the 17 different schools I've taught in. And so I end up doing workshops on technology, and, and I've taken a little bit from every school I've been at. It's really been quite a godsend for me because, because I've learned so much from all of the staff that I've, you know, I just learned one or two items, one or two gems from everywhere I've been. And so 20 years later... I've got all of these skill sets that I throw into my room. So I refurbished using Linux, my own computer lab. 
And uh, I send out an email to all of the parents at the, the beginning of the year saying, please don't ever throw out a laptop ever again. Send it into the school. And if I can't get it working, I steal it for parts or, or whatnot. And I figure it out. And I've got 30, I've got 30 laptops, Toshiba laptops now that, that I don't have to share with anybody. And they're, they're, you know, passwords and remembering your, your darn password. That is such a block to young people <laughs> and their progress. Yep. Keep in mind, I teach grade four, right? <laughs> so I've, you know, made them password exempt and, and the kids have access and, and they love it. And, and so we use those computers to do a variety of things. One of them is Python. We start with Scratch and then we move into Python. We, I have a 3D printer in the room and so we're designing using Tinkercad. We're doing a lot mm -hmm. of 3D printing. And then my projects, I base my projects around the tools that they have access to and the training they have access to with me. So one of our mid-year projects is something that's called My Invention, Invent Something That Solves a Real-World Problem. And given that we have the coding and, and the 3D printing, they truly can come up with solutions to real-world problems. Another one of our projects is My Expertise. They have to go and learn something on their own that, that they then have to teach the rest of the class. And they present and they become teachers. I've done a lot with classroom management around working in groups and whatnot, again, to preserve my energy because I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I didn't have a strategy by which uh, I, I am a completely decentralized teacher. I float around and like a butterfly just seeing what they're doing, but I have them lead. And if anything, I play the Columbo routine. I'm the stupid one who needs guidance. And they come around and they say, no, Mr. Chan, we should be doing this now. <laughs> and, uh, right. Mr. Chan, no, that fraction is not larger than this fraction. <laughs> and, you know, as long as at the end of the day they're leaving with what they need, I, yep. I basically, I, I just constantly am fostering, inspiring them to um, take ownership over creating and uh, exploring. Absolutely. We call that facilitating the learning here. Facilitating the learning. <laughs> yes, we facilitate the situation and allow them to do the learning and the hard work. <laughs> nice. Facilitate the you learning. You know, I, I like that, especially at that kind of grade four age level, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, at, at so many age levels, students are looking to increase their own autonomy and self-direction and everything. But by transferring control of their own agency as learners is really important at that age level because they're the ones who then start to direct where they want their learning to go. They're the ones who feel a sense, like a real stake in learning. It's not something that they're told to learn now. It's something that they can learn and that mm -hmm. when they're able to correct the teacher in a nice way or show the teacher the right way or teach the teacher something, then it gets them, you know, it gives them a real sense of, I'm, I can do this. Like I have a confidence in my own abilities to learn something. And that's something that can take them really far, especially if they're generating that feeling in fourth grade. Yeah. Right? I, yeah. I love the fourth grade, um, age group. We taught a couple of fourth graders in the summer school and they are little sponges. I think they're right before the leaders of the school. I'm not mm. sure how your, what your school age goes up to, does it go up to fifth grade or eighth grade? It goes grade? up to sixth. Oh, six. Yeah. So they're almost the leaders of the school. And I feel mm -hmm. like that age, right before they get there, they they just really want to learn and they want to show people what they want to do. And it's it's such a great movement. Hmm. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I've got a I've got a tag on that, that when you add that 
control. And that's what I do. I constantly am giving them both freedom and control. And then coupled with that, it's responsibility. And when you do that at the younger ages, oh my gosh, you get to see potential that you would not have been able to see had you just, you know, assigned worksheets and said, okay, finish this. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to work and, and kept it all centralized. Listen to me. And, and the fact that I decentralize and say, okay, who's got, uh, you know, an idea for how we can expand on this topic. I never know what, where we're going to go from day to day. And it's amazing how far we get by the end of the year. Just to illustrate that, I have this wall where it's called the wall of inspiration. And what they do is I never assign homework. I say, you're allowed to take this book home. You're allowed to take that book home. You're allowed to do this. This is a website. Can you access it from home? Yes. And, and then they send in selfies. Their parents are sending in selfies. And I've got this wall full of selfies of them doing things that I have not assigned. And, uh, and it's, it's really cool. And, uh, and it makes me coming in in the morning so much happier to be doing my job. And so they get a teacher who's excited like they are. I think too many of my colleagues, to some degree, you know, head towards burnout. That centralized method is, is to me, a, a recipe for, for early burnout. I've been teaching of about 22, 22 years. And it is that hard line of, of watching people that do get burned out and will just end up doing something because that's what they've always done. And mm -hmm. they constantly ask me, you know, you're constantly doing something. And I said, yeah, because I get bored. I, I got out of teaching science because I felt like I was constrained by a curriculum that I did not want to teach. I wanted to explore and, and have science my way. And in, oh. since I wanted science my way, that's why I got into technology because there was always something new and I didn't have to do the same thing. I think when the teachers learn how to flip that learning and not flip it in the in the you know, that tag word education where we flip it and have videos at home, but flip the learning so that the kids are actually the ones learning and not just trying to be sponges and suck up what you learned. I think you find this, this power to keep yourself wanting to teach. Hmm. I've been, uh, I've been a bit of a lone wolf with that approach and, and, and it's been, it's been just in the past little while, Mark Tremblay, a fellow who, who works with Linux at the board level, noticed what I was doing, and a couple of integration aides uh, came in and saw what I was doing. And people said, you have to teach this out. So now I've started doing workshops and talking about it and sharing it out. But previous to three years ago, I thought everybody was working like this. Because to some degree as teachers, we go into our rooms and, and it's our little haven, it's our it's our hideaway. And with with very few exceptions, you have to like I have not seen many of my colleagues in my travels teach. I have not seen them and not many have seen me. And to some degree, I think we would benefit if we saw each other more. That's the benefit of Sean and my job. We get to go into the other classrooms and I've worked in abroad in England and Peru and there are a lot of people who teach like us so you're not alone. We're not, we're not lone wolves and you can reach out and I'll set you up with some people in the PLN. But going out and looking to other people for inspiration and using that in the computer science classroom, I think that's a lot of the things that Sean and I try to do, looking at the way um, a humanities teacher brings in questioning. We, we brought that into our computer science. How do you know? How do you learn new things? How do you investigate? How do you, how do you learn what you don't know kind of aspect? 
So it's, it's always a benefit to watch other teachers to, to pick and choose what you want to bring into your computer science classroom. Uh, you, you know, the other thing that came to mind as you were describing your approach to me was, and I think this crystallized for me in a way that I hadn't really thought of before, but if we define or we measure our progress as teachers by how much we can fit into the heads of our students, right? I think we're always going to be disappointed because it's really turns into something where we've got a finite amount of time and we're just trying to stuff as much content or as much skill building as we can into the time that we have and hope that the kids can keep up and get get through it all, right? So we measure how fast are they acquiring the knowledge and are, are they going to get all of it done in time? And if you're successful at that, the only way to improve upon it is to cram in more knowledge in the same amount of time or less, right? So it becomes this, there, you approach a limit pretty quickly to how much you can teach and how much you can cram in before everybody goes crazy, the teacher, the students, the parents, the administration, because it just stops working, right? Uh. But if we change the way we measure it and we change the way we think about it, so we measure students not by how much or how fast they accomplish tasks, but rather in how far they go, right? And I think it's a, a bit of a mindset change, which is when we turn them loose and we say, you can go, you have, you have control, you have the ability to set your own direction and chart your course, and then go learn and go as far as you can and see where it takes you. When we measure them by how far they go and maybe get away from the constraints of the direction to some extent, we start to see that there are fewer limits and fewer constraints on what's possible for them. How far they can go becomes not something that's bound by the course, but it becomes something that could turn into lifelong learning for them. Mm -hmm. I see. I, I, I can see the teacher's eyes now lighting up going, but how do you know? And I guess for me, to, to sum up what you're saying is I kind of set and I and I'm assuming this is probably what you do, Peter. Um, sorry if I assume, but you kind of set this bar. Here's this bar. This is my okay. I got to get this because that's what my standards or that's what my school says. But for us, I think every time the kids approach the bar, I raise it. And you know, I have kids that are you know right there at the bar, and that's great. And and they've mm -hmm. learned a lot, and they've come up to where I want them to be and I'm happy with them. And I have kids that are, you know, maybe at the bar, but they're not really progressing because they just don't have that energy to go further. And then I have yep. these other, you know, kids that are just skyrocketing and, and no two kids are alike. Right. So I feel like if we at least have this base level, this standard of achievement, and then we just keep raising it. <laughs> it's kind of bad for them. Sometimes they say, you know, but I'm not done yet. No, why? We still have uh, two more weeks. Keep learning. What do you want to learn? And I think that's that's a good summary of kind of, I don't know what I took from you. Yeah. Well, you, you, you didn't, well, you assumed right. You assumed right. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the trick is to have a bar, but no ceiling. And, and, then, and then you just have the children have a vehicle by which they too can explore without the idea of a ceiling and then they end up surprising themselves as well as the teacher as to how far they can go. Yeah, I, I find that coding, Python or any, any kind of language really lends itself to that and it allows, like in the 21st century model of, of learning, which is really more collaborative, here at the Lester B. Pearson School Board, we, we try to use the six C's 
and one of them is collaboration, citizenship, and, and coding covers so much of that because I find when two kids are sitting together working on something, if it's not coding, if it's a worksheet or it's something traditional, there's, you know, I want to do my own thing. There's, there's not this collaborative, it doesn't lend itself as easily, but coding, I have yet to put any two kids together, different abilities, and, and have them have a struggle they love everybody loves working together when it's coding and to me that is something special about coding that that lends itself to that model of of having them have just a bar and no ceiling you made yeah, me I love laugh the way you can have them work together you made me laugh because i wrote down here python no ceiling i was like yes that's why i feel like i never know anything <laughs> there's no ceiling yeah, i just can't right. finish learning i always feel like a newbie every time i turn around there's another uh, real python book or video another something so yeah but that makes sense to me now like i think that's why that passion for python has come about is because yeah. i I have a I, I have this bar the bar minimum of okay that's a newbie that's an intermediate and that's a programmer but there is no ceiling as where you can go with Python, yeah or or any coding language right? I don't know that but well yeah. <laughs> but but like having been in technology careers for years and years and and having gone through a lot of formal education in computer science there's always more that you can learn right and when you find yourself out on the edges of what's known that becomes really exciting too because then you can create things that nobody's seen before. So I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are attracted to things like topics in machine learning, natural language processing, things like that where you can really push the boundaries of what's possible because we're still a young discipline in terms of, of technology. It's not something where we've you know, explored everything there is to know out there. Absolutely. Mm. And we also, we do the, we do, we have tons of conversations about that social emotional aspect of computer science. In fact, our episode that's coming out before this one, we talked about the fact that we're not really teaching coders. We're not teaching kids to be programmers. We're actually teaching them so much more that social emotional, that's those six C's, collaboration and communication. You can do this through this vehicle of coding and you get so much more out of it than just programming. Yeah. And I say just programming lightly, but it's just amazing the amount of learning that happens from coding. But I, I think that if teachers knew how it could wrap and envelope all of the other subjects, the language, the writing, I mean, you know, you could you could just use that print statement and create a wonderful story with just knowing a couple of commands and you're doing it with collaboration and coding and syntax. Just wrapping it up in that in that syntax and collaboration, it just inspires kids to want to do it. Do, do more. My first talks actually were not on technology, they were on social emotional learning because now the kids, they develop this harmony and they develop these virtues that just kind of unfold with working together. And, and I'm really proud of, of the way that they are with each other as a result of so much ownership and responsibility. They feel good about themselves. There's less conflict and, and I can sit here and drink my coffee like I need to. You know, like a good teacher yeah. should. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about like how for these students that you have in grade four, how much time do you spend with them in a given day or a given week 
to be able to go into some of these topics in more depth and more detail. I mean, I think we all hope for that kind of time and attention with it to be able to get into the topics like social and emotional learning in addition to coding. So how much time do you get to spend with these grade four students on a daily or weekly basis covering these topics? Um, I work with a paradigm of layers, Sean, rather than modules of topics. So within okay. a day, I don't divide my day math, English. I have layers that I'm, I'm working in. I'll explain what I mean in a moment. I teach two classes. I have small classes this year, each of them 18 students. And I see, I see each of those kids, each class, I see two and a half days a week. We make a switch on the Wednesday and, and the other days are full days with, with whichever class I, I happen to be with. And, and during that time, they all have jobs that we decide at the beginning of every month, ranging from policing each other to, to using the technology. I have a technologist position. They're in charge of starting our silent reading. I have social judges. If there's any kind of a conflict, they work it out. I have them judging and assessing what we should do the menu of the day. They know we have to cover some math. They know we have to do some English. And then I just wrap around coding through everything I do. And I'm constantly dealing with virtues. One of the first things I do during the day is I, I have these cards from the Virtue Project. You can look that up. It's a, it's a project online. And I give them cards. Each of them has to try to follow and, and be what that virtue represents throughout the day, no matter what they're doing. And mm. we do that every day so that they just have the language of different virtues. And it's it's... It's come from the joy of, of coding. It's come from the joy of working together in a decentralized approach. It all lends itself to them owning the day and owning what they're doing. And at the end of the day, I have my energy, my sanity preserved. I come back from the day and, and, and I'm constantly, wow, geez, that really worked out well. I'm so impressed that you did this on your own. A uh, little guy today who's been struggling for years with, with academics today came to me and said, Mr. Chan, I, I love coming to school. And to me, that was, uh, that was a moment for me. And I know, I know, I need to, I need to when we're done here, write his mom an email and, and just let her know that, that I think she'd like to know that he had that kind of a day finally. So I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm answering you directly, Sean, or if I'm rambling. <laughs> no, that, but... that, that's really helpful. And I, I really like that idea of the longer, the longer days, right? That, that they still get exposure to other teachers and other teaching styles and other subjects and everything. But one of the things that I've always found interesting about kind of the middle school and high school level is the way we divide everything up into these supposedly discrete subject areas hmm. where we say that, that you know, you've got 42 minutes of English, or you've got 44 minutes of PE, and then 42 minutes of computer science, and we maybe take those boundaries of time a, a bit too literally in terms of, well, we can only teach computer science during computer science time. Right. And I think that 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 this idea of having a full day or two and a half days out of the week where yeah. you can explore more complex topics and blend mm -hmm. them together in a, yeah. in a richer way is far more reflective of the working world and the, That's right. the personal world that people are in where yep. you may go from one subject to another or maybe blending a lot of different ideas from different subject areas on a continuous basis. Mm -hmm. I, I never had a meeting where we were just doing, you know, coding and we weren't going to talk about business or the why we're doing it or anything like that. It was always blended with something else. 
Yeah, and I think that holds true with there's a lot of teachers out there that wish that we could have that those classroom without walls kind of experience where I remember I actually remember this when I was in this back in two thousand when I was working in this one school and I was like, Oh man, what if we could just study watersheds? And I think there was a big educational movement back then where we studied watersheds and we studied watersheds through history and we looked at it through science and we calculated the square footage of watersheds and then we did an environmental thing. But that movement in the US I think lived for about six months and then hmm. people were like, Oh, how can we do that in schools? Well, we can't grade them. We got to get rid of it. And I, I've always wished yeah, to put that back shame. in. I know. I know. If you can't grade I, it, don't do it is such I, a exactly. mantra to, to destroy potential. Yeah. And, but I think Sean and I are making our little headway of we're doing a lot of projects in the classroom where we're trying to take coding in to the classroom. And there's a lot of trust that goes involved in, in, hand in hand with that kind of thing where the teacher pretty much has to take a leap of faith. This mm-hmm. teacher that yep. doesn't know any coding and say, okay, mm-hmm. and we have to tell them, listen, it, it's coding, it's technology. There might be glitches. And are you okay with that? We can fix it. And we'll, there'll be a learning that happens. And, but it is a huge leap of, of, of faith that you get from the teachers. And once you get in there and you get to do those coding projects with them, they get hooked. And they see the potential of, of how yeah. it's not just science or it's not just math. We're working on something with world history teacher now trying to do some code with the Constitution. And having her go through the process of making a flow chart of the Constitution, she's just like, oh, my God, this is hard. And I said, mm-hmm. and that's the hardest part of coding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is putting yep. that project in, in words. And yeah, it's, it, it's, it would be one of those days where we could just say, okay, listen, we're not going to go to 42 minutes of class. We're actually going to have real life happen and welcome. Let's learn <laughs> together. It. Real life happen. You know, it's, it's, I find, I find real life now is we are, there are no teachers. We're all learners. And, and I think our, our nomenclature is mistaken. And I, I really think we need to, one of the greatest things I've found that inspires the kids is in the morning, I'll come in and I go to pie bites and I'll do, you know, a little pie bite or something. And, and I'll jump on and the kids will come in. The early ones go, Mr. Chen, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I'll, I'm working on Python. I'm writing a little script here that, uh, you know, joins some, some text together. And they're like, oh, wow. And then, and then I'm learning. They're watching me learn. There has never been a moment where I have more captive an audience than when they watch me learn versus watch me teach. (laughs) I put it in quotes because how much are they learning if they're not inspired to listen? Whereas if I'm learning, they are so engaged and they took away from that, that. So as much as I can, I just start doing things and then they come and they say, what are you doing? And I say, well, I'm learning. I'm reading this, you know, file. I'm reading this digital book. I'm reading, I'm on this website. I'm checking, oh, I want to check it out too. I want, boom. And then it explodes. And then I just take that explosion and I guide it to cover math or English or whatever. But it starts with me always acting like a student, not a teacher. And, and and I think that's really important. I don't know what the right words are to cover that with theoretical model, but I, I really think that that is, there's some insight in there. Oh, I always do this, Sean. That's the lifelong learner. 
That's what we call that in education. (laughs) (laughs) This is my mentoring time. I can give any buzzword you want because I've written it in every session that I've ever presented. I've been doing educational specialists for too many years. So I'm like, we're doing PBL today. Yeah, whatever you want. I got got a name for it. I got an acronym. We go. Well, and, you know, I've recently I've begun framing this with my students in a way that you know, because I, I recognize that they they look to me as having all of this knowledge and all of these skills. And I, I hear them say, oh, you know, Mr. Tiber's an, an amazing coder. And I it took me aback for a second because I realized that, yeah, by comparison, like my skills are more advanced. I've been doing it a lot longer. Right. I've been. Uh-huh. And that's really the major difference is that I've been doing this longer. And so I started reminding them or started explaining to them in this way that they're seeing the version of me now the 2020 version or the 2019 version of of my learning and my growth and they're seeing a snapshot this like narrow window of where i am right now but they're not seeing where i was 20 years ago when i was first learning how to code in this way or 25 or 30 years ago when i was growing up and tinkering with a computer and breaking it and trying to fix it and figuring out what went wrong they don't see me going through all of that learning and the frustration that I went through to get to this point. So I have to show them, here's me learning new things. And here's the things that I'm learning to keep myself growing over time. And I remind them that I'm not any smarter than they are, right, in terms of raw intelligence. I'm not any, you know, not better in in those ways. I've been doing this longer and I've gone through the same exact pain that they're going through trying to understand something or learn something that struggle to learn something new for the first time. I've done that and I keep doing it to keep growing and keep, keep getting better. So to your point, like showing them that we're doing that on a regular basis is really important because it humanizes the experience. It makes it relevant and it makes it accessible to them because if, this is something that their teachers are also learning, right? That we're all learners also, that we're trying to learn new things. It both role models the behavior for them and makes it more accessible to them as something that they can do too, because it's not just something we're born with or it's not something that's just given to us. We have to go out there and and actually try. Yeah, that was, was it last week, two weeks ago? Sean let me take over his class, his eighth graders. And we did three different challenges in the three different classes. And I was showing them how I approached something. And I did not know anything that was going on. It was parsing RSS feeds on one. It was doing something else. And we completed one out of the three. So one of the classrooms, we actually we actually completed one of the challenges. The other two, we didn't. And these are like 35, 40 minute classes. And it was, it was shocking for them because I was trying to show them and showing Sean the way that I solve a problem because the way that I solve a problem is completely different than the way he solves a problem. And I was trying to explain to them because I think they had that conversation. He was like, listen, I've been there, but like 30 years, 20 years ago, I was where you guys were 30 years ago. And I was like, I'll show you how, how I do it. And you guys are going to be, um, surprise, I have to Google every word. I, I don't know a lot of computer history, you know, so a lot of this stuff, I'm like, what does that mean? And I literally go step by step through the challenge and showed them how I start. And it may be a little bit of a, I don't know, a, a 
meandering through the code, but it, it's a good thing for the kids to see. I have to say, like, as much as I've been in technology for most of my life, I remember when I was in grade three, my dad bringing home a Commodore VIC-20 and me thinking, oh, mm-hmm. man, have we made it big. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember starting at a young age, but, and, and I've never really stopped my, my passion for technology. That being said, you know, I listened to your podcast. And since your podcast, I think the, the episode where you talked about the microbits. I got a call from a buddy of mine at the board saying, hey, Pete, would you be interested in a class set of microbits? I'm like, oh my gosh, I know what microbits are. And, uh, you know, and since hearing you, I've checked out Ed Blocks and, and a bunch of other resources that were completely foreign to me. And I've been teaching this way for a good 10 years at least. There's just so much to know. I think that it's just arrogance really to think that there isn't more to know. You know, like I just, I, I don't know. I just, I just feel that it's humbler. It's, it's, it's more grounded to keep that student within us alive and well and show that. And like you described guys, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more human. It's more human. And, and it's still fun. Like I still feel yes. that thrill of learning something new and figuring something out and solving a problem. It's, it's exciting, and I like to be able to show the students that this should be fun, that this is exciting. It's not just mm-hmm. a, a chore that has to be done, or it's not just a grade that has to get in the grade book, right? <laughs> That's right. That this, is, exactly. this is something that we're learning, and the harder it is, the sweeter yep. the victory, right? Yep. The yep. fact that it, when it works and it's something that you worked hard at to get it to work, it is a genuine and authentic sense of accomplishment that you've earned for yourself that nobody else can do for you right mm-hmm. we're not at right. the, we're not in the matrix where you can download knowledge yet right no nope. you got not yet brother not yet <laughs> <laughs> so to switch just just a little any advice for teachers afraid to learn code because we constantly are trying to get teachers to start coding do you have any advice for teachers I, we like to give advice for those out there that are listening and just starting Yep. Well, you've got a bunch of websites there where, you know, like I start all the kids on code.org and, and we do that hour, hour of code, the 15 little levels of whatever it's Minecraft or Star Wars themed activities or, you know, and there are so many websites and I would have them start as a child. I would have them go to code.org and just do something to play around with the blocks, start with scratch. And uh, there's so many websites that are self-guided and I would have them embrace their fear rather than run away from it, embrace it and, and say, this is how your children feel every time they come to your class for whatever your subject is. Oh my gosh, am I going to do well? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. That fear, it's great. It's healthy for you as an adult to experience it. And perhaps this is the only way you're going to. And if the children see you and you actually vocalize it, I'll tell them I suck at art. And I'll say, you know, okay, kids, I'm going to, let's do programming. Let's do some art. Let's use turtle graphics. And I get all stressed out in front of them. And I don't know what to do with the color and the pen down and like pen out. Like I get all, you know, flustered. I have no design skills. 
And then the kids rise to the occasion and they help the poor sucker in front of the class do something positive. Let them have that power. Let them see you vulnerable. It is the greatest teaching aid that you have at your disposal. So my advice to your fearful teachers is is they are better equipped than somebody who has got coding down pat. Sorry, Sean. And, mm-hmm. and I really think that that fear mechanism is going to make them more relatable. And when they're relatable, they inspire. Yeah, you should have saw me speaking Spanish the other day. I was getting corrected in my Spanish by the native speakers. They asked me to cover the course, and I walked in, and I started speaking Spanish, and they're like, it's buena. And I'm like, oh, buena. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I agree. I but agree. It's, the, it's that same same advice. And, and, you know, for me, it's maybe not coding, but it's definitely teaching. Like, do something that scares you. Do something that puts you out beyond your comfort zone, over yeah. the tips of your skis. And, and that's where your real learning is going to happen, where you're going to grow the most when it's something that is a risk and something that scares you, yep. not the things that you're comfortable with that you've been doing for 20 years. That's not learning. No. Okay. Here's my other question. Favorite library do you, in Python? Do you have a favorite? You saw my it's, eyes I go have to bigger see what type. there. I have to see That's what type right. of person you are. Are you so more like I'm, Sean I'm, or are you more like me? <laughs> I'm more like you, Kelly. With Python, I'm more like you. I'm I'm still learning. Like like you know, like you're, even your question, I'm like what? And like so, I I have played around with um, because of uh, what's the book there that I started with again? How to automate, automate the boring stuff. I like that PyExcel library. Okay. I really think that's powerful. There's a lot of spreadsheets that are you know, easily printed or, or derived from software. But but then what you can do with them is limited by that software to simply having that spreadsheet. And suddenly, if it creates a spreadsheet, poof, Python opens up the world to what you can do with that. Like Sean was discussing uh, in the beginning there with all of his, his sports scores and charts and teams and yeah. whatnot. So I have to say, I really like the fact that we can jump into, I'm interested and I don't know if it's, if it's on air that we put it, but I'm re- really interested in learning, Sean, how you got the Google Sheets, online sheets involved, what that was. Cause I've been doing some YouTubing to try to find that as a tutorial and it, it scares me, Kelly. There we go. Back to my fear. All right. So I'll, I'll put, I'll put some links out there, but the short answer is there's two libraries that work really well for this. One is Pi G Sheets. And okay. you can install it from PyPI. The other one is Easy. I think it's called Easy Sheets. But I have here next to me the brand new second edition of Automate the Boring Stuff, no. which has a whole chapter on on the Easy Sheets or connecting to uh, Google Sheets in the book. And I'll put nice. the link to the online version. Oh because, wow! Um, Al has updated his online Creative Commons version of Automate the Boring Stuff to include those chapters. That's so great. he's got some really good stuff in there for working with Google Sheets online. Nice. And I'm going to direct you as, as, a, as a math person, I think, and I feel it's the easiest library, at least for a newbie person, is the Matplotlib. The kids, for me, that one, I tell the kids I love this library, and they're like, why? And I was like, because I understand it. So it's one of those things you just open up and I have beautiful graphs and, and Sean, we were doing tables as well with tabulate and enumerate. And I can just see little fourth graders when they put their, their bar chart in, in a Python graph and Mm. they count the people in their classroom or, you know, how how tall everyone is. I think you'll, if you, we did one where we just, 
we put the code in and then uh-huh. they just manipulated the X and Y axes. Mm. And it was such an, I did that with sixth graders. I'm sure the fourth graders could easily take it. And so now you connect the two, right? So you bring, connect the Google Sheets so you can mm. have a shared sheet with everyone out there putting all your students putting in their own data yep. and updating it and yep. then watching the code update on matplotlib. And we want pictures. That's really cool. <laughs> it's it's just really cool. The Python and what it does for for just creation is just really cool. Thanks. Can I throw in a, a resource back at you guys? Sure. It, Absolutely. Uh, hum, Humble Bundle. I don't think you've ever mentioned it in a podcast, but that's what got me started in Python. It's this charitable, it's, it's a for-profit organization, but you can get... You can get reams and reams of, of books for very little, down to $1. And all of that money that goes to charity. And, and they often, not always, but they often have resources for coding, programming, and specifically Python. Yeah, I've followed them for a few years, and and some of my favorite bundles that they've done have been like either a Python bundle. So several of the the Python content creators have have worked together to create a humble bundle for that. The No Starch frequently does a humble bundle. Yeah, and then also a lot of the ones that are kind of related to Python. So if you see a bundle about Linux systems administration or Bash scripting or things that are useful to do in alongside Python, I would definitely keep an eye out for those as well. And I often will find myself, you know, picking up a bundle where I really want two or three of the books, but I end up getting like 10 more for basically nothing. And I'm, it's really exciting to have them all. Yeah. He got, he got me hooked and we, we supported a couple of our friends out there and their humble bundle. And yeah, so I try to avoid the site because I spend way too much money. <laughs> if the school's not paying for it, it's kind of hard, you know, yeah. <laughs> because we I just buying. put in, I just put in a request to them to see if they could, because there's a lot of kids books now on coding and, uh, and no starch press has a few. And uh, so mm-hmm. I, I asked them, is it possible to get a humble bundle that's aimed specifically at younger, younger audience? It would also get them to have a receptive audience, perhaps, for much longer if they start uh, participating when they're young. And a dollar, I mean, some of these humble bundles, you can start it with a dollar, which is within the reach right. of an elementary school child. Right. That's true. So, Peter, we might have to have you back on at some point because I know that there are a lot of Python programmers who are interested in teaching coding to their own children. And so to pair that at the time that there's a resource available to pick up some of these coding books and cover a spectrum of ages from kind of that grade three, grade four up through middle school when it's such a rich time to teach coding, maybe that's something we could do as a as a combined episode where we talk about you know, how to teach your own kids or provide them opportunities to learn coding at home if your school doesn't offer it. I'd love to join, guys. That'd be great. We'd love to have you. I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here because we're we're coming up on an hour recording. It goes by quickly (laughs) when we have such a great guest to talk with. So Peter, thank you you for thank you for joining us. It's been really a pleasure to talk with you and learn about how grade four learns Python and how you learn Python. So we'll hopefully have you back at some point soon to talk about other teaching uh, methods and other learning. And we'll wrap up here. Thank you, guys. This has been a real treat. Thank you for coming. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing off.
This episode of Teaching Python is brought to you by RealPython. We love RealPython and we really appreciate the support. If you'd like to support the podcast also, you can go to patreon.com slash teachingpython and sign up to be a patron today.